0: If you've got your Bible, please go ahead and open up to Luke chapter 19. We're going to dive in today right away because we've got a lot to talk about. A large section of Scripture will be our focus today. And the passage that we're going to be developing is challenging. This is a tough parable that we're going to be working on this morning. It's hard to interpret it, in part because this particular parable is very similar to a parable that shows up in Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25's parable has some very important similarities, but it's also got some important differences in the details of the story. For instance, in this story, we're talking about a measure of money called minas. In the Matthew 25 account, you might know it as the parable of the talents. That's a different denomination by a lot. Uh, in this passage of Scripture, we're going to see that the servants of the nobleman are given equal amounts of money to work with, whereas in the parable of the talents, different servants are given different amounts of resources to use and to be faithful with. There are no unhappy citizens in Matthew's parable, but they play an an important and key role to the parable we're going to develop today, and the fate of the unproductive servant is completely different in this parable than it is in Matthew's parable. So even though the two tellings are positioned in very similar places chronologically, They both show up very close to the final leg of ministry for Jesus as He's approaching Jerusalem and getting ready for that final work that God has prepared for Him. For the sake of our study, I'm going to handle this parable in Luke as an entirely separate parable, and not as an adaptation of the parable of the talents that's found in Matthew 25. We did a series a while back called Brave Stewardship. If you'd like an exposition of the Matthew 25 parable, you can go back and watch the sermon on that particular passage. But today we're going to look at this Luke and parable as if it is completely different than that Matthew 25 parable. Now we're going to be covering a lot of verses this morning. So before we begin, I want to set a few tasks before you so that as we study, we will know ahead of time what are the questions we're looking to answer as we develop this this text, and meditate upon it. So the basic framework of the parable is is as follows. There's a certain nobleman. This nobleman is currently leading a particular group of people in a particular area. But not all of the citizens of the region that he's in charge of are happy to have him for their leader. He's powerful. He's a wealthy man, more than likely. But he is in the process of seeing his leadership and his influence grow He's going to be appointed more of a kingdom to rule over than what he currently has. So he goes upon a journey that's going to take some time. He's going to be appointed to this new position. And on that journey, he leaves several of his stewards, his servants, in charge of his personal possessions and his resources. And he gives them some things to do before he returns home. And so this parable is going to look at how three of those servants... Failed or succeeded in the task that was given to them. And it will also reveal some of the character and the leadership style of the nobleman himself. And so the first question that I want you to be thinking about today as we prepare to dive into the scripture, what does this nobleman expect his servants to be doing while he is away? This man of great power and influence is leaving for a time, and he expects his servants to be obedient to a calling he sets forth in their lives, what does he expect them to do? This parable is a story designed to reveal some things about God's church and how the church's leader, Jesus Christ, is experiencing an expansion of his own kingdom rule. We talked a few weeks back about how the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, is like a mustard seed which starts small but against people's expectation grows exponentially and becomes incredibly large and productive. And so as God's church and as citizens of the kingdom that Jesus is ruling over, we figure to learn some important things about Jesus and about what he expects us to be doing while he's preparing a place for us in heaven as he is seated now at the right hand of God the Father. Secondly, since the noble man in the parable represents Jesus himself, what does his actions in this story teach us about the person of Jesus in real life? Is the nobleman in the parable really the heartless scoundrel that he is accused of being by some in the story? And if not, what kind of a ruler is he really? And so, without further ado, let us read the scripture Luke chapter 19, beginning with verse 11. <clears throat> As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable, because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling 10 of his servants, he gave them 10 minas and said to them, "Engage in business until I come." But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. And when he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your minna has made ten minnas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant. Because you've been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your minna has made five minnas. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. And then another came, saying, Lord, here is your minna, which I have kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man, you take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. Verse 22, And he said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, Take the minna from him and give it to the one who has ten minas." And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minutes." I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. It's a lot to process, isn't it? Verse 11, our passage begins with a thesis statement of sorts, where Jesus wants us to know right away the aim of this parable. He proceeded to tell a parable. Why? Because he was near to Jerusalem, and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. And so we see from verse 11 here that there were some common misunderstandings in that day about the kingdom of God. He knew that many of the people who saw him approaching Jerusalem had false ideas of what it meant they believed the kingdom was coming, but not in the way that the kingdom was actually coming. It was thought by most that the kingdom of God would come immediately as Jesus entered into Jerusalem as the chosen one of God, that he would very shortly begin the earthly reign of this new kingdom, the reestablishment of the Davidic line. When the chosen son of David arrived, most assumed that man would set about the task of establishing God's rule over Israel, and by extension, the whole world that he had created. And they had not really considered that the process of change, this coming of God's special person, the Messiah, might take some time to develop this full revolution of the kingdom of God being realized. So they thought it was immediate, and he's making them rethink their misconceptions. Secondly, it was believed that by most of the Israelites that the kingdom of God would be a physical and geographical kingdom. As tangible, temporal creatures that exist in time and space, we tend to think in tangible ways. And so the nature of the kingdom was not immediately easy for these people to grasp. They thought the kingdom meant a new country, with a physical throne. seated upon that throne would be the physical king of Israel. They were thinking in terms of borders and territories, whereas God intends His kingdom to be much bigger and much more comprehensive than that. His rule would not be over resources. It would be over all of creation. Thirdly, it was believed that the kingdom of God would be established in a political sense with a human king on a literal throne, ruling over a governing body, enacting the laws of Israel once again, commanding an army and doing battle against his foes. If the enemy of the kingdom was seen, or rather the enemy of the kingdom was seen as Rome, this worldly power that did not honor the true God of creation, rather than Israel seeing that the true enemy was much darker than Rome itself, The true enemy was sin. That was the battle that Jesus was preparing to fight. A battle of epic proportions. Not a battle against soldiers, but a battle against evil. Verse 11 makes Jesus' intentions clear. He wants for the parable to correct their wrong thinking of the minds of those who are in the crowds. And so he tells us a story of a noble ruler going away from his citizens. Some faithful, some not. His journeys to a faraway place where he will receive a kingdom and he will not be returning immediately. In just a few short days from the telling of this parable, Christ will give his life on the cross for all who trust him. And on the third day, according to his promises, he will rise from the grave. And in doing so, Jesus wins for himself a kingdom, a nation of believers who by trusting in him, will be set free from sin and become a part of his rule, of his kingdom, even of his family. We should understand the, eventful, the eventual return of this noble man as the second coming of Jesus. So when he's telling this parable, understand that is what he wants them to have in mind. That he himself will be going away for a time. That Jesus will no longer be with them in the flesh. We talked about how there are two aspects of the kingdom. The kingdom that is already here, Jesus even said, look, the, the ruler of the kingdom is even with you right now. He was speaking of himself. But there is another aspect of the kingdom, this not yet aspect of the kingdom that will come one day when Jesus returns to rise, or raise up the dead with him, to establish a new heavens and a new earth, and to condemn once and for all the wickedness of sin. And so we must have this in our minds as we read this parable and think through what it means for us as we try to apply it to our lives. Until he comes back, Jesus has entrusted his citizens, his church, with a task. And all the resources that they need to complete that task, he has provided for them. And so as we work through this parable, it will be helpful to identify and discuss the main characters of the parable and to try to see what each part they play as we read the story. Character number one is the nobleman. The nobleman. And it is important to understand that this character uh, is is central to the story because he represents the person of Jesus Christ. Now, I've given you a lot of freedom in your notes today, so don't look for the very specific things that I'm going to tell you to write down. But if you hear something that makes sense, that fits in that category, write it down and think about it and dwell on it this week as you meditate on what the Lord has been teaching you through His Word. We see that the nobleman is already a person of power and influence. He already has some citizens. He already has some jurisdiction but he is traveling somewhere in order to receive another kingdom. Now that might sound strange to you, but it wouldn't have sounded so strange to the people of Israel who lived under Roman rule. They had several historical examples of people who were ruling over a region, were recognized by the Caesar as being competent and good, and so they were called to come to Rome to the capital of the empire, so they might be designated ruler over a greater territory. That was usually done with ceremony and circumstance. And then they were sent back to rule that expanded region which they had earned by faithful service to the Caesar. And so the people who heard this would have understood what that means when he says he's going to receive a kingdom. We should understand the eventual return of this nobleman as important to the story as well. It's not unusual uh, for a nobleman to be traveling, to be returning. But the word nobleman is critical to our understanding as well because the word in the Greek, eugenis, does not just mean somebody who owns land. It's not just somebody who has wealth and resources and power, but it literally means a man of noble character, a man who is good, a man who does good things. So we're looking beyond this man's station in life and we're actually looking at his character as well. Jesus is hailed, Uh, In the next few verses that we're going to read next week, you're going to watch as Jesus walks into Jerusalem for the first time, and he is hailed as what? As a king. We're going to study the triumphal entry next week. And these people of Israel, these people who had great expectations of Messiah, are going to hail him as a king, as a ruler, and they're going to do several things that symbolically identify him as one sent by God to rule and so the crowd see Jesus entering into Jerusalem at the beginning of the Passover week and there's this great buzz around him. They shout praises to Jesus. They call him king and make several important symbolic moves towards acknowledging his rule. So there's an obvious connection between the nobleman of this parable and the person of Jesus, especially if you're reading through this book in one sitting. The second character of our parable today are the unsatisfied citizens. Those who hear of this greater appointment that the nobleman will soon receive and who are upset about it, they're not just grumbling, are they? We see here in verse 14, which seems almost like a very strange footnote because he does not develop much about this group of individuals. He goes on to talk about his servants instead. And we're sort of left to wonder what happened to these citizens who are upset. But we are told that these citizens are so angry about this man's appointment, that they send a delegation along with him. If he's traveling to Rome to be acknowledged as a ruler precinct, they send a party to heckle him, uh, a a lobby, if you will, to try to appeal to the powers that be to say, no, we don't want this man to rule after us. When you read verse 14, this line almost seems to not fit in the story. How do we, we relate to these these men, and how do they have anything to do with the ten servants we're going to talk about in a few minutes. Jesus does not take the time yet to develop the conflict. He seems to ignore their grumbling until the business of his trusted servants is dealt with. He only refers to this group again at the very end of the parable, and that point we will return to and discuss them further when we get there. The third character, uh, and this compromises the body, the, the majority of what is addressed in the story, are the servants of the nobleman. The, the douloi, which is a Greek word that means slave or bond servant. As the nobleman leaves, he knows that he's going to be gone for some time, so he must take the time to set up people to handle his business while he's gone. Now, this reminds me, my family's going to be leaving for Arkansas in a few days. We're taking a road trip. Anybody want to volunteer to watch my chickens for a couple weeks? Talk to me after the service, if you're interested. All ten servants are given a similar task. All the men are given the same resources to accomplish that task. A minna is a measure of money, and this measure of money is roughly equal to about 90 days' wages. This is not an insignificant amount of money, but it does represent a drastically smaller amount than the talents that you read about in Matthew's parable of the talents. A talent was a tremendous sum of money, closer to 15 years of wages. And so we've got to see the great divide there. They're not talking about the same gift being given uh, to stewards. The amount given in this parable is nothing insignificant, but it's not extraordinary either. It's an average amount of money, amount of money that the common man or woman in Israel might have to manage themselves uh, in a given period of time within their lives. Pay close attention to what the nobleman requires of his servants here. When he asks them to take these minas and be faithful with them, he says in verse 13, calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. The nobleman doesn't demand a certain return from them. He doesn't fabricate a little competition whereby the most productive servant wins a prize. He simply instructs them to engage in business. Use this productively. Do what people do with investments. What is measured upon his return will not so much be what they have produced as a result of their obedience, but rather their obedience itself the obedience to actually do the task that he has given them to do in the first place. I want you to also take note here that he gives them the necessary resources to do the task that he has set them to. He doesn't tell them to take their own money and earn him some sort of profit off of it. He gives them his resources, his wealth with which to work in the marketplace. These are not the actions of an unreasonable master, are they? From what we read here, he doesn't tie their hands or exploit them. He asks them to do what is reasonable. What they as servants should expect is required of them to do. Friends, are we about the business of our God? In what ways are we living out the mandate of our master to engage in his business? As we examine these three of the ten men, and watch how they deal with this resource that has been entrusted to them, as they have been called to be good stewards of the things of their master, we, we must reflect on our own lives as well and ask ourselves, what has the Lord God given to me? What has He placed in my care that I am to handle in a responsible and godly way until He returns to bring me home? Yesterday, uh, many of us were blessed to experience the memorial service, Dale Staley, here at the church. And one of the passages of scripture that the Lord put on my heart as we were, we were uh, memorializing Dale and celebrating his life together is found in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 54 through 58. It says, When the perishable puts on the imperishable, meaning when we exchange this mortal coil, this, this temporary body, for what God has prepared for us in eternity, for a glorified body that will never perish. And when the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, or O Hades, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is a really encouraging passage of Scripture for us to think about when we have lost a loved one when their passing stings us to the core. And it's not to shame us for feeling grief over the loss of a loved one. I'm sad that Dale is not here anymore. But it is an encouragement to us to show that those who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ will one day laugh at death because it has no power over them thanks to the victory that Jesus Christ has won on the cross over death and over sin. Verse 58 of that passage, if we can put that up on the screen one more time, says... Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding, what? In the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. There will be a day when your name is called, whether you're a Christian or not, and you will stand before the one who gave you life, who gives you life in this very instant. When he says, what have you done with the time that I have allotted to you? What have you produced with the resources that I have put into your care? What kind of an account will you be able to give to him? It's it's sad that our culture in America here largely ignores death unless it's absolutely necessary to face it. We don't think often about the end because we're so safe here, we're so secure, and we have such great insurance and medical advances that we often think that no matter what tragedy might befall us, we'll work through it and we'll live a long life. But it is important when we lose someone dear to us to capitalize on that moment and to think about the brevity of life and that the time that we have here is only short, that when we are finished, the Lord God will ask us, have you been about my business. So though ten servants are mentioned here, this story only records the results of three men. Even this group of three can be split into two simple categories. Those who put to use what they have been given, and those who do not. In the parable of the talents, the three servants are given different amounts. One is given five, one is given two, one is given one. But here, each of the ten servants gets a single minna. In the parable of the talents, you can then interpret the unproductive servant, the one who does nothing with his talent, as perhaps seeing his smaller blessing as not worthy of the work that the others have done. Oh, I didn't bother doing anything with my one because I didn't get five. It puts more of the focus on the heart of the individual. But that idea isn't possible here because each of the servants is given the same amount of resources to invest. Because of this, Luke's parable puts less, less emphasis on the hearts of the servants and places more on emphasis on the heart of the nobleman, showing us his generosity across the board. The first man has not only been faithful, he's been somewhat fortunate, right? Our world might call him a lucky man. He's taken one ten, uh, minna, and he's multiplied it into ten minas. That's a thousand percent return on the investment that his master made in him. What a huge windfall. Of course, we do not know the time frame exactly that the man had in which to earn this great sum. The master could have been away for months. He could have been away for years. Regardless, the man is faithful to the task that he was given. And the Lord blessed him with a great return, which he is then able to present to his master in faithful obedience when he comes home and demands an account. The nobleman's response is one of the sweetest phrases we have recorded in all of Scripture. It's a phrase that we all want to hear one day when our number is called and when we are before our Father. Verse 17, and he said to him, Well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. Well done, good and faithful servant. Because you have been faithful with this roughly $15,000 that I left for you to, to invest, I am now going to appoint you as a ruler over 10 different cities in my kingdom. Consider the disproportionate nature of the reward here. It's not logically reasonable. This is, this is what we call hyperbole in that God is helping us to see that the blessings we will receive for our small faithfulness will far outweigh what we could have ever earned with whatever God has put into our trust. We have to ask ourselves, what kind of kingdom does this nobleman receive if he's got ten cities to just give away to people? Again, the kingdom is much bigger than borders. The kingdom of God is dominion over all creation. When Jesus appoints his men to the Great Commission, he says, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. It all belongs to him. And so as he gives away these ten cities to his faithful servant, he has the power to do that. Secondly, we have to ask ourselves what incredible generosity on the part of this noble man that he would lavish this honor and blessing upon servants who can't demand anything of their master. And yet he intends to let his dependable stewards share in the blessing of his dominion. The second man that we read about is also very fortunate. He has made 500 percent profit. Like the first servant, he doesn't praise himself. You notice this? He simply says, your minna has made five minas." He doesn't paint a picture of his faithfulness to his master and say, wow, it's, it's a good thing you got me because I made some very shrewd decisions. And I checked all the right boxes, and I sold when I should sell, and I bought when I, should s- when I should buy, and because of my hard work, you now have five minas instead of one. He simply says, "Your Minna has made five minas." The nobleman rewards this second service handsomely as well. He receives another authority over another five cities, again, way more than what he has conceivably earned through his efforts in the time of his his uh, nobleman's departure. So what kind of a nobleman blesses his servants this way? That was one of our questions that we started off, right? We're trying to determine and discern the nature and the heart of this nobleman. Is he a harsh man? Is he a cruel person? Does he seem to be crooked in his business? Or is he seen here as a generous and kind man who is willing to share the fruit of his great fortune with those who have served him? We hear of two men who did something good with their minna, but we also hear in this parable about one man who did nothing. The third man did not respond to the nobleman's instructions the same way. Was he not as fortunate as the first two? We don't know how fortunate he could have been, because his disobedience precluded any chance of a lucrative return at all. He guaranteed that he would earn nothing because he did nothing. I mentioned a couple Sundays ago I've been coaching a T-ball team and we just had our last game on Saturday. And one of the phrases you hear in Little League over and over again as coaches are trying to get these little kids to be more bold about swinging the bat is they say, you're going to miss 100% of the pitches that you don't swing at. If you just stand there in the box and you're too afraid to swing that bat, then you'll never know what kind of hitting potential you have because you never even tried. This man was so fearful. This man had so many reservations that rather than putting his master's good money to good use, he simply hid it. And what prompted his idleness? What inspired this? Verse 20 says, Then another came, saying, Lord, here is your minnow, which I have kept laid away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. You know, we could think about this just from a logical stand point, uh, standpoint and say, well, maybe he didn't invest that money because he was lazy. Because he didn't want to go through the effort and, the, and the, the trial and the trouble of putting these things to good work. Man would generally rather be served than to serve others. So perhaps there was a little bit of resentment there that this man would go off and leave him to do the work that he thought his master should be doing. So maybe it was laziness, but that's not what the Scripture says. There could have been distraction. I know that sometimes I'm not about the Lord's work because I am distracted by the things of this world. Perhaps there were tasks that he preferred to be about, and since he wasn't being watched closely by his master who was away, or he felt that he wasn't, he allowed himself to be careless with this investment and didn't do anything with it. Again, that's not what the Scripture says, though. What does the Scripture say? The Scripture says that the man failed to be faithful because of fear. Fear. Fear of the nobleman's expectations. He thought this man would expect more of him than the man actually did. Fear of not being able to properly invest the money, perhaps fear about his own abilities. Maybe he was worried he would lose the one minna that had been entrusted to him. But ironically, if you really look at this parable carefully, the master never ordered them to make a profit, did he? The only instruction that he gave to them was to put the money to work. Friends, how often do we feel like a failure? if we don't, in a sense, make ten minas out of the one that God has given to us. Human beings can often be their worst own enemy. And we can suffer huge setbacks in faithfulness if we demand so much of ourselves and expect ourselves to be so perfect that we begin to to become atrophied. We do do nothing because we don't want to fail. We don't want to be perfect. We don't want to absolutely shine. And we don't think we can be as great as someone else, so we just let them do the work. God is not calling for a certain amount of productivity out of us. He is calling for something much simpler. If we do nothing with what we have been given, we are returning our master literally less than what we started with because of inflation that, that sum is worth less than it used to be. And according to verse 23, when we went, why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at, at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. He could have simply put it somewhere smarter and it would have grown at least a little bit for him. And so the idleness produces less than nothing because it is a dishonor to the God who has equipped us and commissioned us. This servant dishonored his nobleman by refusing to heed his words and at least try to invest that money. Working for the Lord but seeing no results, that's a fear that many of us have, but it does not produce nothing, it produces faithful obedience. And the faithful obedience of one who works diligently but sees no harvest is still sweet to the Lord God. Friend, you might be worried that you're not going to shine like a different Christian who works hard and has great gifts. And so that may may, may make you think, well, I don't want to serve in any ministries here because I don't have any skills. I'm not as blessed as somebody else with the spiritual gifts that they have. I don't have the potential that they do. But what God is calling you to is not fruitfulness and and productivity so much as it is a willingness to abide in the vine that will make you fruitful. Your faithfulness is a glory to the Lord God. And so there is personal application to the believer who reads this and understands it as instruction to God's faithful people. Are you obeying the Lord in, in matters of personal holiness? Are you walking in such a way that you are being obedient to Him and glorifying Him by giving up the freedoms of the world in order to have the direction of a loving God who is wise and wants what is best for you? Are you seeking to serve, especially those who are disadvantaged? Are you, are you caring for those who don't have in this world what you have been given, those who do not have the gospel yet, those who do not have the wisdom that you have gained by diligent study and by prayer and by seeking the Lord? Are you making... Use of the spiritual gifts, specifically that God has given to you, to be a blessing to the church He has put you into. Ephesians 4 talks about how we are to use our gifts for the edification of the body of believers. And so if you are a spectator Christian, then you are disobedient to Ephesians 4 and several other passages which call us to body life. 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans chapter 12. Christ will not be away forever. And when our Savior returns, we will stand before Him and give a report of how our talents were used, how our minna was used, how our spiritual gifts, our abilities, our wisdom, our experiences, our testimony was used for the glory of our God. Is your resource being used obediently? Do you notice the way that the disobedient servant called into question the character of his nobleman? Look at it again in verse 20. Then another came saying, Lord, here is your minnow which I kept laid away in a handkerchief for I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. That word can also be translated a harsh man or a shrewd man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. So this servant, in a subtle way, casting shade on his noble master so that it would not fall on himself is questioning the scruples of the one who gave him that minute to invest in. Are the third servant's claims true, or is he simply blame-shifting? He makes some very condemning accusations here that paint the nobleman as in a not-so-noble light, doesn't he? Is the master really a hard man, a man who demands productivity and is happy to take advantage of others that are not as business-savvy as himself? On the contrary, We have seen evidence that he is anything but cruel, anything but selfish and demanding as a master. The two servants who were obedient to follow their master's commands were commended, not for their shrewdness, but for their faithfulness. And the reward that the nobleman gives them for doing as he instructed was extremely generous. Their faithfulness in very little things resulted in them being allowed to rule over entire cities. So this is not a man who matches the description that the third servant puts out for him. The man who has done nothing with his minna, I believe his sin is clear to him, but rather than own up his mistakes, he puts the blame back on the master. Much like when God asked Cain about the whereabouts of Abel, where is your brother? And he said, am I my brother's keeper? Implying that God, being in control of all creation, should have looked after Abel if he was so concerned with his creation. The nobleman admonishes the unproductive servant for his uh, disobedience. And the blessing that had originally been given to him was revoked. It was taken back and it was given to the man who had gained ten. So the idea that the nobleman was selfish and cruel is nothing more than a fabrication by that disobedient servant, who, by the way, is admonished but not put to death. In the Matthew account, which I believe to be an importantly different Parable, the wicked servant who does not invest well is cast into outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. He is sent to Hades. But in this parable, we see one who is perhaps a believing servant, but who is not willing to do what God has called him to do. He is admonished, some of his blessing is removed, but he is not cast out into utter darkness. Before we conclude, I think we need to return to the second character of the story because we haven't really been able to develop that character yet, the unhappy citizens of the nobleman's original kingdom. What is clear by the time that we get to the conclusion of the parable in verse 26, one thing that we can know about this nobleman is that he will not, by any means, tolerate a divided kingdom. Verse 24, And he said to those who stood by, Take the minna from him and give it to the one who has ten. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minnas. He said, I tell you that everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. The protesting citizens who declared him unfit to rule, in verse 14, seems like we've ignored them for a time. Jesus hasn't really spoken about them at all. What had they done? They hated him. They sent a delegation after him to try to make him look terrible. They slandered him in front of the appointing rulers. The nobleman hasn't responded to them initially. He has chosen to wait. In the interim, they have been allowed a degree of freedom. They are not arrested or confronted, but in verse 27 it says, but as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. The nobleman is patient. He gave a time for these men to change their mind, to come into line with what was being ordered from the Caesar, and yet they did not. His patience will not displace his justice. See, God has been very, very patient with creation, hasn't He? There are so many that walk around utilizing the bodies that He has blessed them with, utilizing the very voice that He has given to them to slander God and to make fun of Him, to deny His existence, to try to prove to others that He is not even there, and yet He endures that. He puts up with it for the sake of mercy. And for a time, these individuals who are slanderers will be able to hear the gospel preached. They'll be able to see people living out the testimony of faith. And if their hearts will turn from hardness to flesh, then some of those who slandered might even be redeemed for the kingdom of God. But God's mercy and patience will not last forever for those who desire to divide the kingdom and oppose His reign. Jesus knows that he cannot allow this, this rival faction to continue to stir up war and division amongst his people. And so he does something that sounds very harsh, but it's something that a noble ruler would have to do. He puts down the insurrection. He puts down the rebellion. Friends, we cannot just see the coming of Jesus Christ as a time where his servants will be rewarded. We must see it as in its entirety It is a time for reward for those who are faithful and diligent, but it is also a time of punishment for those who, though they should, be coming under the rule and and the reign of God, refuse. For those who desired to appoint different rulers or to follow their own lead, these ones will be put down in the insurrection. God's rule will be against their hearts. Can you fight against the rule of the Lord? You can for a time but you'll be fighting the kingdom of true love and true justice. You'll be fighting him with the very resources he has graciously given you to live with. And if the judgment seems harsh, it should. Jesus often shows a harsh parable that offends the people that hear him so that they will perhaps stop and take note of the severity of sin and the drastic need that every human being has for forgiveness in Jesus Christ. Remember, my friends, Though this God is a God of justice and though he will put to death the opposition of wickedness and, and evil that attempts to steal the throne from him, the gift of God is life through Jesus Christ and it is a gift we should continually seek to give to those we encounter in this world. God wants your faithfulness, Christian. At the end of this life, if you don't say, well, look, look, Lord God, I have converted a hundred souls into your kingdom." then don't fear that you'll be condemned and thrown out as unproductive. What God wants to know is, did you simply put yourself about the task that I have called you to do and that I have equipped you to do? Have you been obedient to the task? You might share the gospel with your loved ones day and night. You might faithfully give the testimony of what He has done in your life and see no one repent. Do not become discouraged. The productivity of your faithfulness is in God's hands, not in yours. But what you can do, the difference you can make today is to decide, I will follow my Lord. I know He has given me resources. I understand that He has blessed me with with gifts, with knowledge, with wisdom, with talents, with resources that I can use for His kingdom. And in as much as I can do, I will put those to use for His glory instead of my own. Would you bow your heads with me for a brief word of prayer? prayer before we move into communion time. God, we thank you for your grace and we ask that you would restore to us a hope if it has been lost. I know so many of your servants, Father, walk around with, with their heads hung because they wish they could be more productive for you, Lord God, but I pray that you would help us to rejoice in the simple act of obedience. Lord God, whether we produce ten minas, whether we produce five, whether we lose the one mina we have, Lord God, is not up to us Father, you have called us to simply say yes, Lord, so be it. And so, God, I pray that you would put the amen of Scripture into our hearts today. God, that we would desire to do the things that you have set us up, about, Lord God. That you would want us, you would help us to want to be more equipped to do this work so that we can do it well, so that we can do it efficiently, Lord God, but always keep it in mind that whatever harvest we bring in is not because of the work of our own hands. It's because of the faithful, uh, the faithful work of Jesus Christ as he regenerates the lost and brings the dead to life. We thank you, Lord God, for your your faithfulness to us, Lord God, and we, we look forward to your return. Come soon, Lord Jesus. We love you, and we need you, and we confess these things in Jesus' name. Amen.